Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about uh, great movies. I'm David. And I'm Sean. And we're doing an extra broadcast, an extra recording uh, in honor of Christopher Lee, who passed away recently. And today we're going to be talking about The Wicker Man, which uh, was uh, one of his favorite, if not his favorite, uh, of his films. And I think uh, one of his more interesting performances. Well, and he did help finance it, so... Yeah, uh, it's, it's a film that uh, by 1973 he... Uh, it, it's a film that, though, is connected to all of the work that he was doing uh, with Hammer. It, it, it certainly grows naturally out of those films and uh, gets a, an added resonance by having him in there. Uh, it is also a, a departure from them. Uh, so Intentionally, partic- he, he wanted yeah. to move away from it, right? He did, and particularly the, the Dracula role, which was one that uh, uh, he was never very fond of. Uh, the His Dracula was almost... Uh, had very little dialogue in any of the films. In fact, in Dracula, Prince of Darkness, he had none at all. Uh, I believe that was beca- <laughs> Is that, that the be- one where he just screams and yells a lot? <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's a good film, but uh, I gather his dialogue was so... Uh, he, he found was was so bad that he uh, just didn't... Uh, Decide? No, I'm not going to speak any of these lines. So he just oh, he he just shows up, and his presence is enough. Uh, in fact, he, he's he's off screen for most of the film, and you know, uh, in, this is also, after all, true of uh, Dracula in Bram Stoker's novel that he's off screen for most, uh, well, off stage uh, for for most of the book. But his presence uh, looms over everything, and that is very much the case with Lee's Dracula. But uh, in the, the the Hammer Dracula films, he really has very little to say, and uh, Lee certainly knew the novel well and wished that there was more of that that character. He he got a chance to do something um, that was at least in, intended to be much closer to the book. Uh, I mean, the you know you can uh, how faithful it is 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 another question, but but that captures certain aspects of of uh Stoker's character more than the uh, the Hammer films did and that was Jess Franco's uh Dracula. Interesting. And there's there's you know I think it's interesting that uh th- when you tell me that information I mean I know a little bit about that kind of researching the film but when I think about the Wicker Man now I kind of look back at my experience of when I read Dracula in college and thinking about what I recall of that character and then actually making connections between uh, the Lord of Somerville, Summer Isle, uh, played by Christopher Lee in The Wicker Man, because now those characters seem much closer in my head than they were mm, when I originally saw it. Because of the way he, he speaks, he's, I don't know, it, there's something about, there's, well, we'll probably get into the sadisticness that is well I mean, anyway we'll save that maybe in a, in a minute because i will have some stuff to say about why i find this film disturbing yeah <laughs> and it's not because the uh, anyway we'll get to that but yeah. um but uh, the, oh sorry go on oh well it, it just you know christopher lee has passed away and it, it really is i think a big blow for a lot of people um especially for folks who've been following his career i mean david in your case you're like a horror ninja so you've been you've watched many of his horror films and i know other people may know him from other huge huge uh, franchises like you know that he was in the star wars movies but count dooku which you know not the greatest role he's ever been given but you know given what he was offered he did really good he came off very menacing and had a very commanding presence and even more so i think Probably his most recognizable role is Sauron from Lord of the Rings. Oh, Saruman, rather. Saruman, sorry. Gosh darn it. Nah, just just screwed everything up. Um, <laughs> yeah, Saruman, who, I, I mean, he, well, A, he was a Lord of the Rings. He was a Tolkien fan, right? He loved Lord of the Rings, and he wanted well, he, to be in it. He met Tolkien. Well, okay, fair enough. You know, he's old enough to have done so. Um, and and I, I love that when you, when you watch the behind-the-scenes stuff, there's... There's a very big kind of passion that he has for the material. I mean, recognizing that you know it's Peter Jackson making a film that is a, or making a book into a film that is essentially unfilmable, and yet strangely succeeding, uh, and yet casting Christopher Lee in this role where he plays villain, but he is just like there's this there's a Christopher Lee presence. I don't know yeah. what it is. Well, yeah, I mean he is he's a, a he has an incredible uh, screen presence. Again, if we you know like I mentioned with a lot of the Dracula films, he just shows up on screen. He's just there. He doesn't do anything, and that's enough. Kind of like uh, a Bella Lugosi a little bit. I mean, different, he, but you know that kind of presence where he just kind of shows up. 
Yeah, and I mean, the, um, partly, of course, it's just his his commanding physicality. I mean, he was six foot five or something like that. One of the tallest uh, leading men ever uh, in 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 film history. Uh, so uh, there's that, but of course, it's more than just his height. Uh, so he he is one of these actors who um, you know just he steals a scene just by being there. And uh, and so it was eminently suited to, and with that, that especially that that voice of his, I mean, perfect for roles like Saruman. Now he had long wanted to play Gandalf, but by the time the uh, the Jackson films came into being, and that finally there was going to be a, li- a live action Lord of the Rings film, that moment uh, had had passed. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, he, he made a, a magnificent uh, Saruman. Uh, that that voice of his, of course, has been. Uh, has been put to good use in on no end of of heavy metal albums, not just the ones he released, <laughs> uh, but uh, but many others where every you need someone doing some kind of uh, of portentous prologue, uh, you know, you, you get you get uh, Christopher Lee's un, unmistakable voice there. I kind of and, wish he did audiobooks. <laughs> well, there are some. Uh, I think there, there's um, certainly going the, doing the rounds on um, on the internet. But his reading of Edgar Allan Poe's *The Raven*, uh, and I think there someone um, there the, he has done some audiobooks. Uh, in fact, I um, oh someone was just mentioning someone to me uh, on on uh, on Twitter a little while ago. Um, uh, but uh, the details now now is, escape me. Uh, so yeah, his, his voice is uh, showing up um, uh, in many instances. What, what's interesting though is, <clears throat> though he'd been performing for uh, quite a while, uh, the the role that um, propelled him into horror stardom uh, immediately prior to Dracula was in The Curse of Frankenstein, uh, where he plays the Frankenstein. Where he plays Frankenstein's monster. And he has no lines at all there. Uh, there's there's maybe some snarling, but that's it. And then and then after uh, uh, Dracula, he was the mummy, and no dialogue there either. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you know his height certainly came into ha- uh, came in handy for the, for those two roles. And then after that, uh, we you know he, he really gets much more meatier dialogue roles and playing everything from uh, Rasputin uh, to uh, well if, when he's on the side of the angels. So one of his um, uh, uh, one of his best Hammer films is The Devil Rides Out, where he plays the heroic Duke de Richelieu, uh, combating the Satanists uh, led by uh, Charles Gray. <laughs> Very different role than in the in the Wicker Man. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. <laughs> Though you can see the, uh, the 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 kind of very informed aristocrat, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the very sort of, uh, and very elegant uh, and dashing. Uh, there's a there's a link between the, those roles there. One of his most fun uh, ones, I think, one of his most fun movies, I think, is, is Horror Express, uh, where you not only have him, but you also have Peter Cushing and Telly Savalas. Ooh, Cushing, really? Yeah, Ooh. and they were, and they were, of course. Dr- Huge, huge friends. Uh, it's it's one of the sort of the, one of the the great friendships of, um, in film. And Horror Express was made shortly after the death of Cushing's wife, uh, to whom he was extremely devoted. Uh, Barbara Shelley, uh, another uh, Hammer regular, tells the story of uh, on one of the. Um, I think it was one of the Dracula films uh, where Cushing regularly played Van Helsing. At any rate, they they played a game where. Uh, uh, while they were passing the time, you would draw two vertical lines. Uh, in parallel, and people would have to turn that into a drawing. And Shelley uh, says that most people turned it into a tree or something, right? They added the the, the leaf on top of leaves on top of the uh, the foliage on top of the the two vertical lines. But what Cushing did is that he uh, drew two lines that changed the two um, uh, the two parallel lines into a joined H and P uh, for Helen and Peter. Uh, <laughs> and his wife and uh, Shelley said, "Well, uh, that it was well, it was uh, easy to see how much uh, he he loved his wife." Well, his his autobiography, in fact, ends with her death, because uh, as far as he was con- concerned, his life ended um, at that moment, and so he was just destroyed by um, uh, her uh, her death, and uh, Lee and uh, his wife t- took him in and. 
you know, got him through it. And uh, Lee uh, convinced him to come back into acting. Uh, and together they did Horror Express, where they are two... It's a turn-of-the-century the uh, train set uh, uh, tale of a monstrous uh, alien loose uh, on the, the Trans-Siberian Express. Um, and uh, and this, this, it's, there's a, an invasion of the body snatchers aspect as the alien leaps from, from person to person possessing uh, them. And at one point they are asked, uh, as they're starting to hunt this thing down, well, how do we know it's not one of you? And uh, Lee and Cushing look at uh, this uh, in, in inspector and uh, they, they're utterly surprised and say, say to him, us, but good God, man, we're English. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's the end of it. Uh, so that, that, that's a, a lot of fun, uh, that film, too. Well, excellent. So uh, we should probably get to talking about uh, The Wicker Man, um, because there's a lot we could talk about his career, but uh, we decided, you know, as you said at the beginning of the episode, we wanted to talk about one film to kind of honor Christopher Lee, and I gave you the option of picking it because I figured you knew his his work far better than I did, and you picked The Wicker Man, and I was suspicious because I have seen the other Wicker Man, which is, uh, honestly, having now seen this Wicker Man, that other Wicker Man is even more... Not good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an, it's an appalling film. <laughs> it's not good. It does things with gender that now, having seen this version, I'm like, why? Why did you make it like this weird, creepy, matriarchal? Like, it's just very confusing. I didn't really much care for that. Um, not to mention, Nick Cage punches a lot of women. Um, well, it, it's very much a Neil LeBute film, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, but this film is quite different. Uh, it takes place in northern England, uh, specifically in Scotland, sorry. Uh, sorry, northern United Kingdom. In uh, Scotland on an imaginary island. As far as I can tell, it's not a real place called Summer Isle. Uh, and we have our uh, police sergeant uh howie who shows up uh, after receiving a letter that a child has gone missing to and he comes to investigate and things don't go quite as planned because people lied to him or they don't lie they they equivocate uh where they they say things i mean there's a point in the film i thought was really great where he just stops and he says you damn well know what i mean so stop with this circular thing where you're like, well, when you mean death, you mean something different than what we mean when we say death. Um, I, I, so in any case, uh, it, it's it's a it's essentially like a murder mystery that turns into a kind of twisted, horrifying pagan horror uh, at the end of it. Uh, and as and from what I could tell from from the little research I did on this film, they did a great deal of of research to try to make the rituals themselves as accurate as as was possible at least in 1970 they may have learned something new since then um and uh one of the interesting things i saw was i believe it was the director who said something to the effect of uh if you look at this film at and then you look at the world around you it's supposed to be unsettling because you start to see the kinds of traditions that remain that were based on the traditions we show in the film and you see the remnants of things going on. And there's even a moment in the film when Howie is reading a book about ancient pagan rituals. And he reads to us the section where he says, well, this is sometimes still done in small towns, although the, you know, like the sacrifices and stuff aren't done. It's just kind of the remnants. But in any case, the film, I think, is I think if you are living in scotland or any part of england at this time and you're seeing the the like echoes in your own culture i feel like this film would have been far more terrifying if seen at that point than maybe being an american in you know 2015 <laughs> that said it still really 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 gets it just you get to the end of it and it's kind of like um i don't know what it, the, the anticipation because you know it's coming you know it's coming, and you're just waiting, and you're just, oh my god, just run away, just swim, just swim for it, you can make it. It is, it is dreadful, I think, in uh, that, that, that ending, in, in the, the creation of, of dread, uh, and, well, and the, the lead up to it too. I mean, much of the film is, is, is quite humorous in the, uh, the early goings, right? Uh, uh, Howie is a, a figure of fun. 
uh, I think not just from the perspective of the uh, of the townspeople, but the uh, uh, of the Islanders, but the film mocks him also. Uh, I mean, he's very. Um, I mean, he's 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 a, he's a um, he's, he's a religious elk. prig, basically. Is, is the, the 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 way he's set up. Right, and um, even though he, he also clearly um, uh, trying to do the right thing, um, you know, he's very, very um, he uh, committed to um, uh, what he believes to to be right, and uh, but he's 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 ridiculed for for much of the film. The uh, we get all these. Um, so, uh, uh, songs all the way through. The uh, uh, the director, you know, let the cast know uh, part way through that that they're essentially doing a musical, right? It, uh, it's one of the rare instances of a of a horror musical that isn't also um, essentially a comedy. Uh, and though there is much in here that's funny, the humor drains away bit by bit, and especially once we get to the the May Day celebration. Uh, it's really not funny at all. And so when Howie is dragged towards the Wicker Man, and uh, we know he's going to be put in there and, and, and burned to death, uh, it's, it is properly horrifying. I mean, his, his grief, his fear, his terror, um, his cries are convincing in a way that uh, Nicolas Cage's histrionics uh, certainly are not uh, in, uh, in the remake. Uh, you feel legitimately bad for Howie, even yeah. if you were, um, if, if if you feel contempt for him, for much of the film too. Um, well, I say mixed feelings in that he, you know he's trying to do the right thing, but he's, um, you know, the the way he he's st- he's ex- exasperated and um, trying to lay down the law of this being a a a, a, a Christian nation and so forth. Uh, that that undermines him um, considerably. So he really is the fool, right? Uh, we, he's made into the fool for us uh, with that authority. He embodies exactly what the Islanders say he is come time for the sacrifice. Yeah, and, and I think we should definitely talk about the religious aspect because um, you're right, in the other Wicker Man, I mean, it just doesn't have any of this stuff really going on. It, it is, by comparison, thematically dead. Uh I mean, you kind of get a little bit of things, but it, it, but really this film, I mean, it, it's not heavy-handed so much as it, it is just brutal, I feel like, in, in a kind of intellectual sense. Because we get, you know, Howie, as you noted, right? He comes off as a bit prudish. Um, I don't know much about the Christianity in 1970s England and Scotland, uh, so I, I can't speak to whether or not there's a sense of moral panic about the, I mean, I know that the, in terms of films, there's a great deal of effort in England to kind of clamp down on stuff that is pushing the line a bit far, which is not that dissimilar. From well, the, the video States. nasties uh, that came later. Uh, certainly, the the, the British. Uh, the, oh, that's the, late. That's later seventies. That's in the 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 video nasties are the eighties. Um, well, but um, but Abel but the, Ferreira, the, his uh, his first well first official feature length film, The Driller Killer, is. Well, but that's right because when it was released in the United Kingdom, it was the '80s. So. Yeah, home video. That's the thing. Uh, and you, yeah. though you certainly, I mean, you have the, uh, the the British. I mean, you have the the British Film Censor Board. That um, I mean, there are the, these you know issues that um, uh, so the, 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 there were problems. I think the though the. Um, what we might be seeing more, and I, and I know Estina Light and I were, were discussing this a uh, bit on, on, on Twitter, and we, we have d- different takes on the film, but I think we certainly would agree that uh, the film reflects the um, the culture clashes of that era, um, the particularly coming out of the 60s, uh, and, uh, you know, sort of ne- neo-paganism. See I, see, I wasn't familiar with that, and, and I didn't have time to really do enough research on it, because I suspected that that was what was going on, because this film seemed like it was very on point, to a certain degree. Yeah, and I think where, where, um, where we differ, I guess, the, the, one of the questions um, that uh, she and I were discussing is the, the film's position in the, the, the battle um, uh, uh, that, that we see there between Christianity and... Um, and and paganism, um, and um, uh, she would. She sees the, the film as being very much um, 
sort of the, uh, seeing the uh, the pagan uh, rituals here as something fearful, uh, and, and so the film as a kind of uh, uh, almost like a call to arms to return to um, a, a more to return to traditional Christianity. And I hope I'm not putting um, uh, uh, words into into her mouth here. Um, the uh, I and and I can certainly I mean certainly we, um, the, there's no doubt that the that ritual we get by the end is is utterly horrifying. Uh, the my um, where, where I, I I come at it from a different perspective is that I don't feel that Christianity in the film is presented as a viable alternative. Uh, the the Christianity represented by Sergeant Howie is uh, appears to be repressive, uh, deadening, um, and perhaps equally um, futile. In that, one of the the third angle in this debate is, of course, uh, the uh, ration, the, the, the sort of the, it's the way science comes in, right? And so we know. Uh, because Lord Summerisle tells us that uh, Summerisle's extraordinary fruit in a climate that shouldn't be able to support fruit trees was the result of the um, the, the scientific experiments of his grandfather. Right. And the return of uh, the old religion to uh, the island was a strategic move on his part to motivate the islanders to help him in his great work. And then, uh, the, the, lo and behold, the, uh, the, the, the trees, uh, bore fruit. So, uh, we know that it was, um, it was essentially, it was a con job that brought that religion back in, in the first place. Now the, uh, the crops have failed. And, as, as Howie points out, it's not because of insufficient sacrifice. It's, you know, there's a scientific explanation for this. Uh, and yet, the, and the response, though, is, um, a, a, a pagan sacrifice. Now, how he does have that, that he makes that protestation that this, that's what happened. But when um, he's put into the wicker man, he then responds with saying that God has blighted the island and uh, uh, the fruit is withering on the vine. We get this, these dueling religions um, uh, that are present there. And the representative of one of them burns to death while the representatives of the other are performing a sacrifice that is, uh, in all probability, not going to lead to anything. So uh, it, it's as if both, at least for me, both Howie and the Islanders are responding in the wrong way to the realities of the world they live in. Well, okay, so here's where I will bite you a little bit. All right. Um the, the, what you said in the last line, responding in the wrong way, uh, from their individual perspectives as religious people, they're responding in the right way within the strictures of their religion. So wrong in the sense from outside of that experience, but from their – I mean this is the thing I find that I think Howie finds very frustrating is that you know, even when he's not doing the kind of moralizing like Jesus saves and like you you all are like teaching it wrong. It's, you know, where, what about Jesus Christ and all these kinds of things? Even when he's not doing that, he becomes frustrated with the fact that he can't seem to rationalize with these people. And that's because just as much as in the end when he basically devolves into Christian ranting, uh, they're embedded in a in a particular viewpoint that there are no outside solutions. So from their perspective, it's entirely rational. Our religion dictates that if we sacrifice somebody to the god, uh, the gods will be kind to us and our crops will return. And so it's never failed us before, right? If we do animal sacrifices, everything's worked out just fine. So we just should keep doing the same thing. I mean, it's it's about traditions being repeated and being repeated culturally. Uh, so. It may be wrong from outside, but I think what's frustrating is that from within those those enclosed, very repressive ideologies, that they can't rationalize with each other, even when the answer is staring them in the face. Yeah, actually, I think I would I would agree with that. Uh, okay. That uh, that yes, they from their perspective, from their belief, uh, as far as their belief system is concerned, this is absolutely the right thing to do. Just yeah. as uh, Howie's behavior um, and, and um, is absolutely the right thing to do from within his um, uh, belief system. Even and the mandated, two he's in a position where he is being 
he's being punished by sinners, as it were. And his response is, repent, right? Yeah. You know, give yourself over to Jesus and repent. And like God, you basically, you know, they don't do know not what they do. He's he's basically he's basically Jesus in this moment. He's the martyr for God. Well, yeah, he's, well, as as uh, Lord Somerville tells him, you're getting a rare privilege. You get to be right. a martyr, right. uh, and uh, but the, and this, of course, is what he keeps running into is that uh, though because. Um, uh, from his perspective, there, uh, Christianity is an unequivocal truth. Then everything they do is utter nonsense, right? Uh, and so, and he can't get out of his mindset to see that uh, they view what he believes to be utter nonsense. But what the the film, I guess, what, what I was trying to suggest earlier is that so both Howie and the Islanders are acting in accordance with their beliefs. Sure. But what the film gives us by a way of uh, the the origin of the fruit of Summer Isle is the outside knowledge that tells us that Howie and the Islanders are both wrong. No, that's fair. Okay, I, yeah, that makes much more sense. We yeah. know they're wrong, even though they cannot see that. To be fair, maybe they're right in well, sacrificing it, I, him, except there is an unofficial sequel of sorts that the was never tree. made in which the crops do actually fail. So oh, there actually was made. The wicker tree was made, uh, and in fact, uh, um, uh, oh. it was uh, Alexander Lannister pointed out to uh, reminded us today of uh, Christopher Lee's cameo in that. Sure. I gather, oh, I meant I there. There was an actual sequel written, which in which Howie survives. Oh, I see. Uh, the police apparently magically show up. <laughs> Right, very much like God's. Well, would be like Deus Ex Machina, right? It'd be, it'd be God. The gods have intervened, and they rescue him. And then he, like, at the end of the movie, apparently, like, he fights a dragon, and then he dies oh off a cliff. <laughs> like, it's just yeah. And I, I confess, I haven't seen The Wicker Tree, so um... I haven't either. It's supposedly even worse than The Wicker Man, so maybe not. But there is a worthy follow-up uh, to The Wicker Man, and that is Hot Fuzz, uh. because. <laughs> The uh, Hot Fuzz um, uh, borrows uh, quite heavily from the plot in that we have a a, a very um, by-the-book, uh, somewhat repressed uh, police officer who comes to a an apparently idyllic, uh, isolated location where strange things are happening, and it turns out the entire town is in on it. Oh, okay, yeah. It's a very similar plot, or at least in, in, in its broad lines. And furthermore, uh, Edward Woodward, who is Sergeant Howie in The Wicker Man, is the head of the Neighborhood Watch Alliance in, oh, um, right. in Hot Fuzz. So he's, he's, he's almost Lord Summer Isle in that film. Oh, that's great. Um, that's great. Uh, okay, so to go, to go back a little bit, um, I, I thought it was really – okay, so so – I love how much of this film deals with the attempts to tempt uh, Howie, uh, because we see, and I, I think this is really important, and I, and I don't know how intentional this was, but there is a clear uh, tie between the very early scenes with Howie when we see him praying on his bed, right? At various times, things happening around him that, from his perspective, are like these are heathenous activities, right? People are singing, like they sing that that. In retrospect, kind of creepy, but at, at that moment, it's like they're singing this really filthy song about the, the landlord's daughter. The landlord's daughter, right? This super filthy song. It's 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 dirty. It is some like even Shakespeare would be embarrassed. Um, <laughs> and they sing this, you know, almost comical, dirty song. And then they're immediately after that, we get um, we we get Howie hears uh, some some folks coming by who are who are going to have his son basically like lose his virginity with the landlord's daughter the sacrifice to aphrodite yes yeah the sacrifice to aphrodite um and i i believe that was christopher lee in that scene as well right and he brings yeah boy. that's when we first see lee yes he brings the young man to uh, the, the uh, who's who's going to be uh uh well quote unquote sacrificed yeah and so uh, through various points we see howie praying right he's trying to pray away the vulgarities that are around him I and mean, he he tries to ignore the fact that he basically saw people having an orgy outside uh, uh he tries to even that that moment where whether see the temptation is finally getting to him right where he's in his room and the landlord's daughter there's a song and she's singing this yeah. song where she's basically like serenading him and banging on the walls yeah. and 
and he's desperately like he tries praying through it and he can't pray through it he tries to lie in his bed he can't and then you see him get up and he goes to the door he starts to open it he slams it and then he goes to the wall and he is sweating and you can see him shaking he is so driven to temptation and all of those times we see him praying and praying and then we finally see that that break away in the very final moments when he's being burned alive in which he sits down and he prays to god yeah, and then even that disintegrates into his just the shrieks that we get um, at the very end. And when his and God the, has failed him, right? Because he asks yeah. God specifically in his prayer, let the fires not burn me, or not hurt me, at least, right? He, he also begs not to die, but he also asks specifically, right, let, let the pain not get me, as it were. Well, rather, let, do, and not let, uh, he prays to not be uh, burned by the fires of hell afterwards that's sort of like he's yeah. distinct yeah and the uh, the scene with um that you mentioned before with uh, where Britt Eklund is uh, performing that that serenade on the other side of the wall naked uh, by the way yes and, and it, it's interesting in that there's a um it's one of the moments in the film where there is a uh i, I think we, we get something like the um uh, almost like uh, Walter Delamar's um uncanny in that um the it's like a spell is being cast there, right? Yes. Uh, and the, a, so we have moments where we we have the possibility that maybe what the Islanders believe in is correct after all. Uh, it's not we we, we you know it, it, it's not unequivocal. We could say that he's just very aware of what this woman's doing on the other side of the wall, um, and it's uh, it's driving him crazy. But his reaction is so extreme, so tormented that it seems to go above and beyond what a strictly rational interpretation of that scene would allow for. Uh, so it is, uh, it, 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 it's a really interesting moment, uh, I, I think, uh, there in, in terms of the, the the question of whether there is a supernatural. I mean, the, so much of the film, as we move towards the climax, is uncanny right when, uh, when he f- tries to leave the island and we start seeing all of the villagers popping up wearing those masks yeah uh, I think there's this wonderful uh, sense of daylight unease that's uh, that, that, that's created uh, I, and again something striking about the film and that it's it's climax of suspense and horror uh, takes place in broad daylight yeah uh, there are very few night scenes uh, in the movie and most of the night scenes involve people having orgies or exactly going yeah. to get sex in some capacity or another. <laughs> there is quite a bit of sex in this. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, either is. implied or actually, well, not actually, literally occurring, but yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I saw that, I mean, that scene to me was, I mean, it, it, it felt very much like a character who is, I mean, it's sort of, you know, he's this very religious man. I mean, we learn this very easily. We learn at one point that he is a virgin, that he doesn't believe in sex before marriage, that he's engaged, right? At least in the version I saw, which does not include the extra 10 minutes of stuff. Um, There are a number of different versions of this. I think I saw the one that's missing 10 minutes uh, because that would be the material from the disc. So the the audio, the quality would be different, as you mentioned off podcast. Um, But we get this sense, you know, he's very much repressed, um, or if not repressed, then he's – what's the word I'm looking for? Like he, he just – he firmly believes in his religious values and he's sticking to them. He, he's, he's puritanical, I suppose you could certainly say. Yeah, yeah. If not repressed, then puritanical, right? He, he, he has his rules and he's going to stick to them. And we see that time and time again, right? He gets angry and then he pulls back, right? Because uh, in some sense, uh, he is judging them, but he's sometimes getting put in his place. Like there's a moment when he goes to the school, for example – Right, and he sees them learning about the the maypole, right, which is it's it's a penis and it's a, the phallic symbol and it represents fertility and all these things. And he's like, "You're filling their heads with filth." And then she kind of puts him in his place because she's being calm while he's the one kind of breaking down. And in that same scene, when when uh, the innkeeper's daughter is doing this serenade of sorts, uh, it's it's his composure breaking down, yeah. and he's. He almost does. I mean, he literally opens the door like half a foot and then slams it because he's he's he is losing control. He's losing control of the temptation that falls away. I feel as soon as he realizes that or as soon as he believes that the girl is going to be sacrificed. I think that's the moment at which or rather that uh, the girl's going to be sacrificed on May Day and that he can't get off the island. 
think that's the moment when all of that falls away and that he is no longer uh he he's no longer fearful of temptation he's now resolved in his religious yeah. religiosity as it were right he believes himself to be on the pure path now uh and he sees the rest for the the farce that it is it just turns out that he he is the fool in the end right because he cuz He's, he's been lied exactly, to, and he's yeah. doing exactly what they want him to do without realizing he's doing it. Um, although I didn't quite understand in the very end, something that didn't make sense to me is they say, right, they need a willing sacrifice. And he I, he's willing in that he he comes to the um, site of the location on, under his own on his own of his own free will. So he comes to the island of his own free will, and more particularly, he comes to the site where he's going to be sacrificed of his own uh, free will. He doesn't understand why he's going there, right? He thinks he's running away with Rowan. He thinks he's rescuing Rowan, so he's tricked. But mm. he he joined the procession as as the fool. And he, uh, everywhere he went, he he made the decision to go there. So though he was manipulated, uh, he was not dragged to the location uh, where where he would be sacrificed. So oh, th- that's that's why it was really imp- the R- Rowan's role um, at the end uh, was so crucial, uh, and they they played out that uh, the last little game uh, before Summerisle reveals everything to him. Yeah, yeah, and gosh, the the ending scene is really it's just it gets increasingly more disturbing. I think as it goes along. I mean, the moment when they're all singing this song. While he's being burned alive, and they're dancing, and and they're they're just happy yeah, as they're yeah. doing it. And there's that I don't know. Summer, if, Summer is he coming in? Is the uh, is the it's a medieval song that they're they're singing. And it yeah, and it's that there's that moment where I mean he's screaming at them, trying to get them to listen to him. But I I, I feel like there's a moment at which he realizes that they they can't. That they are so lost. I mean, how do you rationalize in any sense with the people that is joyously singing about burning a man alive? And that, I think, is what I find so horrifying is all rationality is gone mm-hmm. in that moment. There's nothing you could possibly – like you could – like God himself could come down and be like, thou shalt not burn my, my son to death. And they would be like, no, nah, we're going to do it. We're going to sing a song. Because they they can't think outside of that any more than he can think outside of his own Christianity. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a like weird like <laughs> irony there uh, in that uh, in his own kind of puritanicalness that he's the one that gets sacrificed. Uh, and yeah, it I found that the most disturbing part is the the complete absence or destruction of rationality in those moments. It's gone. And there's nothing you can say. Yeah, and I and I do think that that is um, is is what the, the the film is 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 it pains to to point out that uh, uh, Howie and the Islanders are we're, we're seeing in both of them uh, the the results of the irrational, right? That they they are uh, he and the Islanders are being guided by belief. Which is which then leads us to the the terrible situation that we get at the end of the film. Yeah, it's tragic. I mean, I I know you said very early on that you didn't feel I, you didn't quite say you didn't feel sympathy, but you feel less sympathy for him. And I don't know what it was about this, but uh, I got to the end and I felt, despite the fact that I'm sure if Howie and I met in real life, like we would not get along, because he's too religious uh i felt just i felt like his death was so tragic and i felt so much sympathy for his character because not just because he's tricked but because and in a weird response for me was that i I felt like he was right (laughs) there is something depraved about what's going on i mean the lies the level of lies the the temptations, the sort of blatant temptations, you know, and disrespect for his religious views, and even though he's being disrespectful of theirs, uh, and on top of that, just that they're they're willing to sacrifice human beings. 
Well, in which yeah. case, I mean, that would uh, that would suggest uh, uh, that that would be points in favor of, of Stina's argument that uh, this is, in fact, very you know sets up the islanders uh, the paganism as being an, an entirely horrifying thing. Um, well, this version of it. Well, yeah. yeah, and and well, and and certainly, uh, and, and I would say the. Uh, I think Howie's a character that one feels less that I. I don't find I have much sympathy for for much of the film, but at the end, I certainly do. Uh, that that there's no way that he deserves what happens to him. Uh, it is it is it is utterly tragic. I I, I agree uh, uh, completely. Um, and I I think uh, like I said what what I see uh, uh, there is this kind of uh, conflagration um, of two uh, re- religious perspectives, one burning the other, uh, and. Uh, but again, neither of that. They, one of the other things the film does is points out the parallels between the two, right? Very similar beliefs uh, in 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 broad lines, if not in detail, right? Uh, and and so when when Howie um, is 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 pointing out that the Islanders' beliefs are completely ridiculous and make no sense, uh, the film then asks, well, how are yours any more sensible? Right. The the moment with the teacher. In which you know she's talking about uh, rebirth and reincarnation, right? That uh, Rowan, like when he realizes that they're all lying to him, when he when he says "Where's Rowan?" right, and they're like, "Oh, she's dead," like she doesn't exist, right? Is what they say. She does not exist. And then he basically pulls his authoritarian hat on and he breaks into the desk and he takes out the the ledger, right, to see who the people in Castle. He's like, "Well, look, she's right there." And don't lie to me. You're all lying to me. You're all liars. He says it to the children, right? He says, you're all liars. And then they have this conversation outside about religious belief, right? They, that the, the Morrison child believes that Rowan dies and becomes a hare, right? That there's transmutation at another point when he uncovers the grave and they have a debate about transmutation at one point. So that was amusing. But the teacher says to him, right? It's easier for children to believe in reincarnation than it is to believe in the resurrection. Right. Well, and, there's, and there's also, uh, in the discussion with Lord Summerisle, the whole uh, uh, issue of virgin birth comes up. Yes. Yep. I mean, that, that's that constant challenge. And, and I think it's important that in the film, he oft, that Howie often doesn't have a response. He's presented no. this very good point, and he doesn't know what to say. It shuts yeah. him up. Right, and there's even when it's not religion, there's that point when he he busts in after finding the hair, and he's like pissed, right? And he throws that hair down while the, while um I guess Lady Summer Isle, I can't remember what her. Uh, that's the um uh yeah, it's the teacher that uh that who that we see there. Oh, is it the teacher? Uh, okay, yeah, and he throws his hair down, and she's singing this song, and Christopher Lee's playing the piano, and he's mad, right? And what he says to them is, "What the hell's going on? Tell me the truth about the stuff," and Lord Summerisle stands up and says, well, I think you're the one who's supposed to be the sheriff, the detective around here, and it shuts yes. him up, right? Because, of course, he's right, right? <laughs> like, you're the detective, and you're accusing us of lying, and it's somehow our fault that you're the one that's not figured this out? <laughs> so it shuts him up constantly. He's going, he's like running against walls and yeah. not figuring out, like, people bring him arguments he has no response to, and I think that's because as much as they are embedded in a viewpoint that they can't think outside of, so is he. Except that their viewpoint at various times does seem to be willing to accommodate outside view, but only to a point. I mean, there is. I mean, you noted earlier, right? When Christopher Lee says you have the rare honor of being a martyr, right? They don't believe in the same Christian God. They believe in different gods and and have very different belief systems, even when there are similarities. Uh, and yet, in that moment, he's sort of accommodating the the possibility of martyrdom, right? As though in being sacrificed, this is not a bad thing. It's actually in the service of our our mutual faiths, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's that's something that comes up a lot. This this uh, that that the the religions are so drastically different in so many different ways, and they're presented as close at the very end, but. Everything leading up to that doesn't suggest that they're as closed, that the pagan one is actually the more open one, to a degree. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's that's the thing. It, it, the you're placed in. I think that the film places the viewer in difficult, very difficult positions. There were certainly there's no way we can um, countenance what is done to Howie at the end. Mm. Uh, but uh, the the rituals that we see all the way along look a lot more appealing and fun. Uh, then, yeah, orgies, uh, sure. Uh, well, yeah, but you know the games that we see, like all, all the different aspects of it, and that is something that we that is is missing in the theatrical cut or the 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 the, uh, the, the shortened version. In the the longer one, where we get the prologue in the mainland, we see how we going to church and receiving communion, and uh, uh, with of course the, uh, uh, the 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 sacrifice that that represents. Uh, being uh, set up, and it all looks very staid and um, and distinctly unappealing. Yeah, no, that you're 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 right. I mean, if you're comparing which one more people would be most likely to gravitate to, if not pre-exposed to one or the other, they're more likely, I think. To go for the pagan one, at least until the very end. Until <laughs> the whole burning people alive thing. And, yeah, yeah, that's probably the point where people are like, yeah, I'm going to get off the bus here. <laughs> but, I mean, they're not going to go for Howie. I mean, Howie's is he's repressed. He's not allowed to have sex before marriage. And the, even the idea of it, like, offends him, right? He's, he's upset at the very concept of it. He gets angry with people constantly. He's losing his temper because he's surrounded by all this temptation that he can't he can't even control himself whereas everyone else is like oh like let's sing a dirty song about the innkeeper's daughter let's take our our 18 year old sons to go be laid by the 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 representative of aphrodite let's have an orgy in the streets let's dress up in funny costumes and dance around let's go play with rabbits right it's all like very freeing and opening by comparison and which is i think part of what the threat is right that it his is not open it's in fact about keeping all of those possibilities out, about controlling oneself, versus one where no, it's it's about the limitless possibilities uh, of of joy and pleasure and desire and life. I mean, everyone around him is far happier than he is at any point in time. Yeah, no, that, that that's very true. I think I might also uh, just mention uh, in, in in a related vein uh, the in, in the film's sort of broader context of. of uh, horror context is the other other films that touched on similar themes uh, in the years well in and around the same period uh, as this right I mean obviously we have the uh, the starting in 1968 with Rosemary's Baby we have the you know the, the proper arrival of Satanism um, in films it, it well no I shouldn't say that uh, because we have Night of the Demon in 1957 and uh, the seventh victim uh, in 1944 I think it was uh, uh, b- before that. But the the big wave uh, with Rosemary's Baby and then The Exorcist the same year as um, uh, as, as the Wicker Man. But um, we also have uh, things that you know just uh, the the flip side of uh, burning people. Uh, since obviously uh, Christianity d- didn't have a stellar track record um, in this regard either. So there's films like uh, Witchfinder General with Vincent Price, uh, also known as The Conqueror Worm, uh, in, in the United States, where uh, we have essentially it, it's the other side of this, where with uh, Price turning up and having people uh, burned and executed in all sorts of horrible ways uh, as uh, he imposes uh, the, his iron rule uh, of, of his, his particular form of Christianity itself motivated by his own uh, sexual uh, jealousies and, uh, and, and obsessions. Mark of the Devil being another uh, particularly lurid example uh, of that. And I think somebody called um, uh, the, pre- the one you mentioned just prior to that, the, uh, the uh, Witchfinder General. Yes. I think has been called also a folk horror alongside yeah. this one. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think they they make an interesting um uh, a, an interesting double bill. Also uh one of Vincent Price's finest films. Interesting. Okay. Um well, uh I we've been going for a fair clip uh and I think we got to wrap up. Uh I will say that having seen the other Wicked Man, I would really recommend seeing this one. It's a little weird because as you mentioned earlier, right, it's got the kind of musical element and it's. I think if you're not expecting that, it's very weird, and yeah, I was not go, expecting it. <laughs> go in knowing that it's a folk musical horror film. Yes, it it 
And uh, I think that that element of it gives it a very different creepy factor once you realize what's going on. Um, of course, if you've not seen it and you listen to this podcast, you would know what's going on. Uh, it's bad stuff for Christians. They're all just, just not having a good day. Uh, but I, I would really recommend this over the other version. Um, I think that this is a far better film, flawed though it may be in parts. Uh, but as a horror film, I feel it, it's very unsettling. And that's what I want in a horror film. I want to be unsettled. <laughs> yeah, I think it is an unsettling film. And I guess I would, uh, I'd, I'd like to uh, uh, add that, uh, I mean, whether you watch this or not, it is, this is a nice opportunity to go back and look at the enormous wealth of films that Christopher Lee has left us. Uh, and he, to go back to something you mentioned at the beginning, it is, I think, a loss that's felt particularly strongly in, in the horror community. I mean, though he has, um, you know, he became the most bankable uh, film star in the world when he was uh, starring in the Lord of the Rings and the Star Wars films simultaneously. Uh, but his and his range of roles covers all kinds of genres, but it is with horror that he is most... Um, he's most associated and with his passing we have lost one of the 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 last icons of um that particular period uh in 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 horror films the uh the sort of the rise of uh the the european horror film uh or i, sh- I should say the 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 return the the storming return of the european horror film at the end of the 50s and into the 60s uh barbara Steele is still with us uh but uh, uh she may not have the, really the same name recognition uh outside the horror community as christopher lee did and i think it's an interesting phenomenon when we think of the actors who are associated with with um, a particular genre, uh, that, that's something we get a lot in horror, much less so, I would say, in science fiction. I mean, I think the closest that science fiction fans have experienced to this loss recently is, is of course, uh, the passing of Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. Uh, but th- there, for the most part, he, uh, his, um, you know, it, it's the, his association with one particular role, right, that... Um, uh, more than any others, that sure. uh, like we we don't really think of actors as being science fiction actors, right? In the same way that we think of as um, as, as certain actors being horror movie actors, uh, for whatever reason uh, that uh, this and and so Lee, for the, though he was in science fiction films and he was in thrillers and he was in comedies and uh, it is the the horror films that uh, that defined his career um, and uh, his, his presence and it is an incredibly rich one uh, the, an incredibly rich film legacy that he has left us absolutely absolutely well um, so farewell to the the late and great Christopher Lee um, and thanks everybody for listening uh, if you'd like just to kind of be kind of fun about it uh, let us know what your favorite Christopher Lee film is just send us an email. Uh, you can do it totally pretentious at gmail.com. You can go to either one of our Twitters. Uh, David's at David underscore Annandale, and I'm just at Sean Duke. Or you can try to like hunt us down in person in a couple weeks when we'll be at Convergence, and you can just scream a movie at us. That works, too. <laughs> that um, definitely does. Absolutely. So uh, on that note, I think we should uh, leave it there. And yeah, take care. Bye, everyone. Bye.